Tonight's speaker, Jack Goldstone, is one of these highly distinguished scholars. A sociologist by training, elected to Phi Beta Kappa at Harvard when he was an undergraduate, where he went on to get a master's and doctor's degree, Professor Goldstone is the author of over 100 articles. He's written or edited 10 books, including award-winning monographs on revolution and modern society, European history, uh, and politics and social movements. He has taught at Northwestern University and at the University of California, Davis. Today, he is the Virginia E. and John T. Hazel Professor of Public Policy at George Mason University. His current research focuses on conditions for building democracy and stability in developing countries, on the cultural origins of modern economic growth, and on the topic of tonight's talk, global population trends and how they shape our future well-being. Please join me in welcoming Professor Goldstone to Colorado College. Well, thanks to everyone for coming out here tonight. Thanks to Beta of Colorado for inviting me here. Thanks to everyone in the community who's been involved in this series and this event. Now, I'm here tonight to talk about demography. Demography is usually boring. In fact, although demography's greatness lies in it being a very quantitative field, rich in numbers, rich in formal theories, that also sometimes obscures the importance of demographic changes. So I am not going to present a series of numbers. I'm going to try and make it graphs and pictures. But nonetheless, the message I want to drive home is how important some of these numbers, these relationships are for the future of the world. We are at a time that is a turning point historically in a number of demographic trends. We're about to see our society and the world as a whole go where no prior civilizations have gone before. There are a number of changes that are underway, but I'm going to focus on just a few. One is the shift in the global economy from a world dominated by Europe and North America to a world where most economic growth, indeed the great majority of economic growth, is likely to take place in what are known today as the big emerging markets, the developing economies. And I'll talk about the reasons for that in just a minute. Second major trend, ah, we lost number two somehow, huh? Now it's just not going to respond. Technical problem. Okay. Um, second major trend, which you will also see, is the aging of the rich countries. That's something so familiar now and so frequently talked about, it doesn't need mention, right? <laughs> Third major trend is the location of the world's youth. Uh, those of you who remember growing up in the 50s and 60s, probably can call to mind a picture of going to the neighborhood supermarket or walking down the street and seeing lots of children at play, of having to be careful when you drive because children were always following bouncing balls into the street. It's now the case that one can go into most major cities in America and Europe and go into a shopping center or a shopping mall and see very few toddlers, very few children. And yet if you go to 
South America, especially if you go to Africa or Asia, and go from the moment you reach the airport, it will strike you that there are children everywhere. And so it is now so drastically imbalanced that almost 90% of the children in the world under age 15 today are growing up in developing countries, many of them growing up in countries where Islam is the majority religion. Finally, another historical change. One is that growth for the first time in 200 years is going to shift mainly away from today's rich countries. Second is that rich countries are getting older than any societies previously in history. Third is that Islam is becoming the world's fastest growing religion. And fourth, a majority of mankind, for the first time ever, is live now living in cities. We passed this threshold around 2005. And going forward, we are going to see a situation in which people in developing countries are almost as urban as those in the rich world. And this is what's really novel. The largest cities in the world will be found not in the richest countries, but in countries at middle and low levels of income. Throughout history, the great capitals and the largest cities, London, Paris, New York, were in countries that were leading the world economically. In the future, it will be Lagos, Mexico City, Cairo, Jakarta, Mumbai, Shanghai, Beijing that will be the dominant urban centers of the world, and not just those capitals with which we are familiar. China already has over 100 cities with a population of a million or more, and there will be cities throughout Pakistan, India, China of many millions. That will be the location within about 30 or 40 years of the great majority of humanity. That is, they will be living in megacities or very large cities in the developing world. Very simply, when we look at the growth in world population, this is going back from 1950 to 2050, the action is in the less developed nations. Now, if I was to extend this back from, say, 1750 to 1950, it would look rather different. From 1750 to 1950, it was Europe and North America that were leading the way in global population growth. The Industrial Revolution, bringing with it means to reduce the incidence of disease, improve construction, build waterways, helped underpin a huge population boom. So much so, of course, that Europeans colonized the entire world. European communities grew in North and South America, in Eastern and Southern Africa, and in Australia and New Zealand. And there were always Europeans on the move and even growing in numbers at home. Excuse me. In 1914, the population of Europe was still larger than the population of China. All of that has changed very drastically in the 20th century as modern medicine and improved nutrition have allowed the populations of the developing countries to start to grow rapidly as well. And because they started with a larger base, they are taking off and continuing their growth. From 1950 to 2000, as you can see here, the growth in the less developed nations was strong, starting to overwhelm that of the developed countries. And in the next 50 years, that 
trend will be increased. So that by 2050, about 90% of the world's population will be living in today's developed, developing countries, only about 10% in the rich world. Now, in addition to that shift, if we say not only how many people are there, but what will they be doing, what will they be producing, what will their capacities be? The other thing that happened from 1750 to 1950 is that the rich countries started to industrialize. So workers had their productive power amplified by steam and electric power, by factories, and by improvements in education so that universal literacy went from being a dream to a reality in the Western countries, well accomplished by the beginning of the 20th century. Developing countries are now tracing those same steps. So in China, India, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, Turkey, Mexico, Brazil, we have large populations that are not only growing in number, but that are acquiring increasing skills and that are bringing industrial technology to bear to increase their productivity. The result of that is a multiplier effect between population growth and increased productivity such that the vast majority of economic growth for the coming decades will be found in developing countries. If we look in particular at the global labor force, this is the population aged between 15 years of age and 59 years of age. That's the block that accounts for most of workers. The trend we see is quite stunning. The rich countries, shown in blue, did have an increase in their labor force from 1950 to 2005, but that's now peaked and is starting to decline. Meanwhile, labor force growth in the least developed countries is taking off. It took off especially in the 80s and 90s and is continuing on a very rapid increased trajectory. It is literally true that all of the net increase in sorry, all of the net increase in the global labor force in the next 50 years will take place in developing countries while the labor force in the rich world declines. Again, this is something just unprecedented. Now, the future of the rich countries looks something like this. It's not just that we're aging. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a tribute to our success in prolonging lifespans. But in addition to prolonging the lifespan, we have seen a dramatic and unexpected decline in childbearing in the rich countries. This is something that we have never seen before. Yes, we have seen fertility go up and down. But we've never seen large communities, entire nations, voluntarily choose to have fewer children than their parents. This happened in China under a coercive one-child policy and was much remarked upon. But Europeans seem to have adopted a voluntary one-child policy. And Americans are not far behind with a net fertility rate just barely reaching two two children per every two parents, that would keep population stable. But European populations, because of the baby boom that's aging and the extreme low fertility, mean that children are simply not coming up to replace the parents. How many more older folks will there be? 
Here, you see the blue space in the more developed nations continue to grow. If you look at 1950 and 2050, you see that that thickness of the blue line actually increases a great deal. Less developed nations are aging as well. And so after 2020, the growth in aging in the less developed nations actually will become greater. And countries like China and Brazil and Bangladesh will actually start aging themselves. They're only about 20 years behind us. However, they're also having more children. So that while they will have more elderly people, they'll still have a more even balance between the young and the old. How bad is the distortion here? Let's just look at the departure from what we were used to. On the left side of this pictogram, we have worker growth. In blue is the worker growth between 1950 and 2000. And you can see in the US, the working age population grew by about 88%. In Europe, much less, grew by about 30-odd percent. And Japan and South Korea, about 90%. That was the growth in the 15 to 59 age population. And that was one of the things that underwrote the economic boom in all these places. But in the next half century, the yellow bars show a very different pattern. The United States still will have some growth in the working age population, higher fertility, but mainly through immigration, or at least immigration that is projected. Even so, the growth in the workforce in the United States will be only about a quarter of what we enjoyed during the second half of the 20th century. In both Europe and the industrial nations of East Asia, the labor force will actually shrink. Meanwhile, growth in the elderly population, on the right side, we see the percentage growth in the population aged 60 and above. Here, the US is a leader, may not be a good thing in that regard, but the United States will see the population over age 60 increase by almost 140%, the vigor of our baby boom showing in these numbers. Europe, Japan, South Korea, had smaller baby booms, and so the increase in the elderly will be correspondingly less. Europe only a 60% increase, Japan, South Korea about an 80% increase. Still startling numbers for a population 60 and above. But what is really going to be a pressing problem is the combination of the left and right side here. A sharp decline or even reversal in the growth of working age population, but an increase in the elderly. Now, some people say, look, the U.S. is in much better shape. We're still going to have worker growth. We're going to be able to manage Europeans, Japanese, and Koreans. They're in trouble. It's not entirely true. Americans, we're famous for it, we work pretty hard. The labor force participation rate, that is, how many men and women in the labor force age group actually have jobs, that's been traditionally pretty high. Labor force participation, I should say, includes both those who have jobs and those who are looking for jobs, and the unemployment rate in the last couple of years may drive people out of the labor force. But these figures from 2008 show that the U.S. labor force participation rate is about 65 percent. The main group who are not in there is women, 
but also a substantial number of young people in school and retirees. But if you look at Japan, France, Italy, even Germany, you see the labor force participation rates are considerably less. You may have seen the pictures of demonstrators in France vigorously protesting the fact that they may be forced to work until age 62 before taking retirement. Deeply worried that they would have to work as hard as Americans. Very un-European. But this is a safety valve. European populations have more slack. They can send more people to work to balance their aging population. The United States is going to be hard-pressed to do so because we've already got the highest labor force participation rates in the world. What will be the magnitude of the increase in the U.S.? Again, the numbers, if you really dwell on them, can be unsettling. From 1950 to 2000, the United States added, and these are bars that show the gains, 82 million workers, 25 million people over age 60, of whom about 8 million were over 80. In the coming half century, going back to 2000 and looking forward to mid-century, we will add only about half as many workers, but we will add about two and a half times as many people over age 60. And of those over age 60, we will be adding 20 million so that there will be a projected 30 million Americans over age 80 in 2050. As I say, that's a good thing. It's a tribute to longevity. Many of those over 80 will be over 90, even over 100. The number of centenarians is growing every year. However, the bulk that the elderly will have in the total adult population is something that is historically unprecedented. In America, about one in four adults will be 60 or older. In Europe, it'll be closer to one in three. We simply do not know how to organize or support a society in which one out of four adults is 60 and older. Can we insist that people over 60 continue working, and for how long? Five years, 10 years, 15 years? What do we do about transportation in a population where perhaps one in 10 people is over 75 and questionable behind the wheel? What do we do if we are unable to bring down rates of Alzheimer's disease, which now afflicts one out of every two people over age 85, and those people do not pass away. Alzheimer's is a debilitating but not fatal disease, but leaves people in need of costly support and nursing care. When the numbers of people over age 85 triple, as they are projected to do, will we have the people to care for them? Now, there are plenty of young people in the world. In fact, the world as a whole is actually still teeming with youngsters. Fertility rates are falling everywhere, but a decline in fertility doesn't immediately translate to population growth coming to a halt. Because if 20 years ago birth rates were high, that means there's a very large number of young women entering their prime childbearing years. So it takes about 30 or 40 years for a decline in fertility to translate into a reduction in population growth. Now, global fertility rates have been falling for a while. 
but we won't see global population growth level off until about mid-century. Meanwhile, the vast majority of the world's youth, as I said, 90% of those under age 15, are going to be growing up in developing countries. Geographically, they're concentrated in an arc going from Central America, across Africa, and into South and Southeast Asia. These are the regions where young people are still anywhere from one-third to, in some cases, one-half of the existing population. They are a potential tremendous resource. As we've said, they pose, or they are, the future labor force of the world. But there's also a danger that if they do not find work, if they do not get the education and skills they need to take advantage of opportunities and be productive, they may turn to violence. This picture is from Thailand, a country that we had treated as a successful middle-income democracy, a leader in the developing world, but that ran into difficulties, particularly a conflict between an established elite and an aspiring young populist movement that had supported a new political leader who was exiled, in effect, by the traditional elites, provoking a mass of unrest. My colleagues at George Mason and I have developed some measurements of the quality of governance and the fragility of rule around the world. We rate governments on their ability to provide basic health and education, on the level of human rights violations, on the level of income and job growth, and on the ability of governments to collect tax revenues. And putting these factors together, we can distinguish between those countries that seem to be capable of administering their affairs and educating their people reasonably well, and those that have various degrees of weakness in this regard. As you can see, the countries that have the most young people, unfortunately, are also the, same, the very same countries that have the least ability to provide security, education, and welfare for those young people. The countries in brick, red, and orange are extreme, high, or serious in our regards on these state fragility indicators, whereas the yellow and white ones are doing reasonably well. You see a fairly sharp north-south divide here. I showed you that picture at the beginning about the global labor force and showing you that most of the global labor force of the future was in developing countries. Here's another way to look at that. This separates global labor force this year and 30 years from now between countries that were serious, high, or extreme on the state fragility index and those countries that seem reasonably stable. What we find is out of the expected billion additional laborers coming online in the next 30 years, only about 100 million of them are growing up in countries that today rank as having stable governments. Almost 900 million are growing up in countries with deficiencies in government. It's also the case that growth in the Muslim world is much faster than growth in the U.S. and Europe. Now, this would be of no particular consequence if relationships between the U.S. and Europe and Islamic countries 
were reasonably sound and highly varied. To some degree, it's inaccurate to talk about Muslim countries because they differ greatly. Indonesia to Morocco, Nigeria to Egypt, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they're all quite distinctive. What they have in common, however, is that public opinion polling shows increasing hostility to the West in general and the United States in particular, a consequence, of course, of the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and of the concentrated propaganda from Osama bin Laden and his affiliates seeking to increase hostility between Muslim communities and the West. Certainly, we don't want to give in to this, but there has been a xenophobic reaction and a tendency in the West, in Europe and the US, to exhibit a broad fear and condemnation of Muslims and to treat Muslims of all varieties as a threat. I don't believe this is true or valid, but the more politicians and the media and the public continue to say out loud that Muslims are not welcome in Europe, or Muslim places of worship are not welcome in the United States, or Muslims are a danger. Those words are heard throughout the world. We are, in effect, contributing to hostility, indeed picking a fight with a global community whose numbers are increasing far, far faster than our own. Indeed, about 700 million additional Muslims will join the population of the largest Muslim countries in the next 40 years, while the population of the US and Europe may increase by a few tens of millions. So this is not a fight that we want to see continue. It is, I believe, imperative that we start to repair the damage and improve relations between Western and Islamic countries as rapidly as we can. I can give you more data, if you wish, on the growth of cities, on the growth of impoverished communities, or on the possibilities for change. But what I want to impress upon you more than anything else is that the world ahead of us is very different from the world that we have grown used to in the last 50-odd years. In the last 50-odd years, the economies of the US and Europe dominated the world. As recently as 1980, the economy of France alone was twice as large as the economy of China. It seems inconceivable now, but in 1980, even though China was a large country, it had torn itself apart with the great proletarian cultural revolution and had yet to embark on the market-friendly reforms that were instituted by Deng Xiaoping. But in the last 30 years, China's economy has grown so rapidly that we've gone from a situation in 1980 where Germany and France together had five times the economy of China, and China's question was, can we get Europeans to buy our goods, to a situation today in which China alone has an economy almost twice the size of Germany and France together, and Europeans now are asking, will China buy our goods? But China's story is not the whole picture, and it would be a mistake to think that we're heading toward a world dominated by China. China's population, as I mentioned, 
having been coerced into a one-child policy, is about to stop growing. China's economy will likely continue to grow as people move from the countryside to the cities. But China's population will probably level off at about 1.4 billion within the next five years. Meanwhile, the population of India will continue to surge forward, probably reaching 1.6 billion by mid-century, so that by 2050, roughly one of every three people in the world will be living in either China or India. The population of Africa may well double in that time. The populations of Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan, problems now for U.S. foreign policy, are among the most rapidly growing in the entire world. Indeed, the population of Afghanistan, despite the war, which although deadly and disruptive, is killing only tens of thousands out of a population of 25 million, population of Afghanistan is expected to triple by 2050. Pakistan and Bangladesh together will have a combined population roughly equal to that of Western Europe by mid-century. Turkey is growing rapidly. Indeed, the Turkish economy may rival that of Russia within another 20 or 30 years because Turkey is going up, Russia is going down. Even though Russia's economy is growing at the moment due to high oil and gas prices, its population is starting a precipitous decline. So we're going to see a world in which the balance of economic power is completely unfamiliar to us, where by far the greatest amount of growth in consumption, in labor force, perhaps even the leadership in lifestyle is shifting to the developing world. Meanwhile, the rich countries, including the United States, despite migration, are going to have to deal with somehow supporting, enabling a population that is going to be much older than anything we've ever seen before. Now, the title of my lecture was not Demography and the World's Future, but Futures, because I don't believe these facts, distressing as they can be, determine our future. Rather, they give us options. If one looks at the global population as a whole, it actually looks fine. If you could erase national boundaries in your mind and stir the population of the world, you'd see that the number of children and the number of elderly people is on a reasonably balanced level going forward for the next few decades. The difficulty arises from the fact that the geographic dispersion places rapidly aging populations in Europe and America, but relatively young populations close by but separate in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. So we're going to see opportunities if Europe and the U.S. manage to overcome anxieties and fears and welcome immigrants to strengthen their own populations and if the U.S. and Europe, Japan, even to some degree China, Brazil, other successful countries, if they engage the world, if they invest in education and training and improving governments where young people are growing up, I believe there are great opportunities for another generation of rapid global economic growth. 
Now, in order to keep that economic growth from destroying the planet and fouling our civilizations, we will, of course, have to find more environmentally friendly avenues for growth. And those megacities that are growing in the developing world will have to find new blueprints for less energy-intensive means of supplying dense populations with a good standard of living. But I do believe that human creativity has solved terrible problems and responded to crises before. We have that opportunity again. What we have not had in the past that we face now is a situation in which the great source of creativity, energy, and youth is growing up in countries that do not themselves always provide the education and the capital and the opportunities for problem solvers to emerge. So we do have a balancing problem. We have an international relations problem. We have a global governance problem. It is imperative to put aside some of the divisions that are creating conflict between the rich world and the developing world, between the West and Muslim countries. It is absolutely vital to accelerate the rate of improving educational quality, investment, and access to capital in developing countries where tomorrow's population is growing up today. I believe if we do those things, we can have an increasingly peaceful and prosperous future. And just as the generations who lived through World War II can look back and say, what a disaster. Thank goodness we have moved forward and moved past that and built a more prosperous and peaceful Europe. I do hope that someday soon we can look back and say, yeah, the beginning of the 20th century, 21st century had terrible wars, had crises, had terrorism. But by 2030, by 2040, developing countries had turned the corner, provided education and opportunity for their young people, and were helping build a more prosperous world. Thank you very much. And I believe we have time for questions, right? I'll stand up here and do my own uh, pointing at people. Please. Well, I have a number of suggestions for how to try and improve current conditions. Xenophobia, that's a particular issue that I think is best overcome by improving travel opportunities and cultural exchange between different peoples, and particularly young people. But there's a lot that we can do to limit the consequences of xenophobia. I take it for granted that people are going to be afraid of change. They're going to be alarmed at the idea that the dominance of Europe and the US that we've taken for granted is now slipping away. They're going to be alarmed at thinking that our future is no longer entirely in our hands, but depends on the outcome of growth and socialization of young people elsewhere in the world. But to get past that xenophobia, what can we do? I think politicians need to be vigorous, because some politicians are going to be trying to trade on that xenophobia. They already are and try and win votes that way. So I think global, globally responsible leaders have to respond, just as we've always responded, to 
efforts to label certain groups uh, and use hate speech against them, you, know, you have to respond by saying, what do we really want? If we want to have the best doctors, the best engineers, the most creative artists, and the most enterprising people, we're going to have to open our doors to a substantial number of people from outside our borders because that's where much of the global talent pool is going to be found. Even if we simply want to provide workers to take care of our aging population and to pay the taxes, we can't turn people away or we're going to go bankrupt trying to meet the promises that we've made. So I think you have to respond to xenophobia not by pretending it doesn't exist, but to try and remind people where their real material interests lay. And that is going to be in doing whatever it takes, however difficult or awkward or sometimes frightening, to try and benefit from growth, much of which will occur elsewhere in the world and that we want to bring inside our borders as much as we can. We're also going to have to improve the structures of global governance because right now, although things are changing, and the G8 has been replaced by the G20 as a first concession to this shift in global economic growth, we're going to have to change the situation where we have a United Nations that's still dominated by World War II victors in the Security Council. We have a North Atlantic Treaty Organization that is still structured mainly as an alliance to protect itself from the now fading threat of a land invasion from Russia. All of these institutions, NATO, the World Bank, IMF, G20, will need to incorporate those rising emerging powers that have the manpower and the economic growth to contribute to stabilization operations. Because there are going to be explosions. When you have this many youth concentrated in poor countries, not all of those countries are going to be able to provide jobs and opportunities fast enough. So we're going to see things like Thailand, we're going to see problems like we saw in Kenya, and the rich countries simply won't have the money or the manpower to respond. So we're going to have to remind people where their material interests really are and remind them that we don't want to pay the burden of keeping the global peace only within the rich countries any longer. We're going to have to team up with other countries to provide global structures for responding to crises and creating a global climate for better trade and economic growth and environmental regulation as well. Yes? For those of you who couldn't hear it, the question was about the U.S. support or lack thereof for democracy and what is the U.S. policy toward democracy. It's always difficult to personify the U.S. We're usually talking about the policy of a particular administration in power at a particular time. 
and U.S. support for democracy around the world has fluctuated both in the level of support and the prominence with which support for democracy features relative to other concerns. So if we go back to the Woodrow Wilson administration, support for democracy became one of the primary points. In the Roosevelt administration after World War II, converting Japan to democracy and restoring democracy in Europe became primary. During the Cold War, under Eisenhower and then Kennedy, support for democracy often took a back seat to finding allies against the spread of communism. Now, since the end of the Cold War, we initially saw a substantial effort to support democracy in the former Soviet Union. We invested very heavily in trying to support democracy in Russia, supporting the Yeltsin regime, and we also withdrew support from dictators in Africa who we had supported during the Cold War, like Mobutu in Zaire. However, the results of those efforts were very disappointing. We did not succeed in entrenching democracy in Russia. When we withdrew support from dictators, often the result was chaotic and violent rather than a transition to democracy. So there was some reduction in the emphasis on promoting democracy um, as we got into the late 90s and the Bush administration came into office saying it would be a mistake for the U.S. to emphasize building democracies around the world. Now, as you know, the Bush administration changed its tune very quickly when it became embroiled in Iraq, did not find weapons of mass destruction, and started saying our real purpose in Iraq was to build democracy in the Middle East. But they focused on doing that one country at a time, making no effort to bring democracy to Egypt, even though Condi Rice went to Cairo and gave some verbal support, as it were. So where are we today under President Obama? The international community of development agencies, the U.S. Agency for International Development, Britain's DFID, the Swiss, uh, Swedish, and other groups, the United Nations Development Program, have come to realize that simply rushing elections into countries in the hope of creating instant democracy is not a policy that generally yields desired dividends. So while these agencies still see the eventual creation of democratic institutions as a desirable way to provide accountable, effective government, they have usually put a higher priority for the moment on establishing protection of basic human rights, individual security, and rule of law. Now, sometimes that means countries using rule of law to suppress dissent because they've passed laws essentially that outlaw the opposition. But the focus is, if there is a state that is collapsed and not working, the first job is to restore some kind of state that can provide physical security and keep order and provide some kind of judicial regime. If such a state exists, we first want to encourage it to respect the rights of people and women where possible, and we want to encourage them to allow opportunities for people to get educated and acquire and build businesses and build jobs. And as those things happen, it has usually been the case that people in countries ask for democracy for themselves. They don't have to have it forced upon them. We've seen that in Ukraine. We've seen that in Indonesia. 
We've seen it in several countries in Africa. We've seen it almost everywhere in Latin America, that given a chance, people do want democracy. So it doesn't have to be a question of what is U.S. policy. Promoting democracy is not a good policy everywhere all the time. However, the U.S. is deeply committed and is going to renew that commitment soon, I believe, under a statement that Secretary Clinton is preparing. We're going to renew the commitment for U.S. support of human rights, for U.S. demands for respect for the law and good governance, and support for aspirations for democracy where people are moving in that direction. I think that's the more sane approach that is now prevailing. Yes? Because I'm looking at a 30 to 40 year period, there are no currently credible global warming scenarios that would affect this. Most of the catastrophic consequences of global warming are predicted to appear in the second half of this century. That said, many of the visible signs of global warming increases in the range of various pathogens and species, the uh, uh, calving off of icebergs from Greenland and Antarctica, the disappearance of mountain glaciers. Those things are all happening much faster than we expected. It's possible that some global feedback loop might get triggered. For example, if there's some critical threshold that releases vast amounts of methane from the tundra, and that leads to a cycle of greater greenhouse gas concentration and greater global warming. You could have a runaway warming that would accelerate and bring some of those trends up to 2050. Even so, unless the climate trends also lead to a cataclysmic spread of dangerous diseases, it is not likely that shifts in climate or sea level will affect most of the long-term population trends. Most of the people I'm talking about who are aging, of course, are already born, and most of the children who will form the labor force of the next 20, 30 years, or their parents, for sure, are already born. So if you're talking about could there be a terrific drop in fertility rates due to people being driven from the land or facing climate catastrophes, it's not likely. Now, these projections that I've talked about are the UN medium projections, not worst case. And the medium projections take note of the fact that fertility has been falling rapidly around the world. If not for that, these projections would look different. If we simply said, assume fertility remains the same as it is today into the future, then you would see China's popula I'm sorry, India's population approach 2 billion, you would see global population reaching maybe 12 million instead of 9 million. But at the moment, we're already facing a world where fertility rates are falling quickly. It's quite amazing. If you look at the um, percentage of the world's people living in countries with below replacement fertility, that is less than two kids per couple, in 1950, unheard of, four-tenths of a percent. By 2000, almost 40% because of China and Europe. And the projection under current trends is that by 2050, about 75% of 
the world's population will be living in countries with below replacement fertility. And so global population growth will essentially stop. I don't think that's going to be either sped up or slowed down very much by what happens with the climate. Well, never is a very long time, and I would never talk about things that would never happen. You'll almost certainly be wrong. Remember, once the baby boomers die off, you won't have that overhang of elderly people to support, and the population balance will quickly return to something more historically normal. So although we have a tremendous problem of support for the elderly between now and about, it'll, it'll, it's going to get bad in a hurry between now and 2030, and the percentage of elderly in the population will continue to grow between 2030 and 2050. After 2050, baby boomers will no longer be such a strong presence, and by about 2070, 2080, uh, we won't have that overhang anymore. And by then, who knows what the labor market will look like. But let me get back to your question about the new normal. There is a new normal in the world. And if we don't react, we will be in bad shape. The last time we had a serious recession of this magnitude was the Great Depression. And one of the things that pulled America and Europe out of the Great Depression was a surge in population growth. New families formed. They wanted to buy houses. They wanted to put furniture in those houses. They wanted to buy new cars. And that created a momentum forward for rapid economic growth. If we have a situation in which the population growth slows down dramatically, stabilizes, we're not going to have that demand for new houses to be built, for new cars. We'll be in replacement mode, as it will. In addition, there'll be fewer young people entering colleges. There'll be fewer young people leading the edge of innovation. It's very likely that the new normal will be a population that is just trying to hold its own and stand still, rather than have a lot of inherent opportunities for growth. Now, does that mean we're stuck with that? I don't think it means we're stuck. If we get a technology to develop electric automobiles, if we get a technology to generate energy from low-carbon sources, if we get new technologies of transportation, that can ignite a wave of growth as people scramble to get the new products. The difficulty for employment is whether that growth will provide jobs for people who spent most of their lives in an industrial economy and may not be able to retool as technicians or repair people for new technologies and so on. I do think that if you look at what happened in America from 1950 to 1980, growth was fueled largely by improvements in population and productivity. From 1980 to 2000, much of the growth was fueled by credit. 
and we had quite ingenious inventions in the credit market that allowed people to borrow against assets of a variety of kind, mainly their homes. But we ran out that borrowing about as far as it could go, and now people are retrenching. People are not, let's put it this way, there are going to be fewer people who have to buy cars or homes because there are fewer new families being formed. And there are going to be fewer people who are able to buy big-ticket items because they won't be able to borrow against the value of rising homes because the home market is not going to be juiced by the formation of new households. So we're going to have to adjust to a permanent reduction in purchasing power by the current U.S. population. That's going to mean jobs are hard to come by unless we have new industries form and expand that provide new jobs. And that's iffy. So I would say I hope that we will find new sources of growth. The best and most reliable sources of growth, however, where there really will be fast-growing markets, are in the cities of the developing world. So if American industry shifts its focus, instead of saying we're going to view the developing world as a source of cheap labor or raw materials in order to make goods to market to rich people, you've got to change your thinking and say we have to find goods and services that we can market to very rapidly growing populations of low and middle income people who are just starting to increase their purchasing power and demand new products. If we can focus and serve those markets, there will be growth. I just don't know how many jobs that will provide, and certainly we don't know whether it will provide jobs for people who trained to work in factories or to make furniture or to work in retail. That's a different question. It would be good, I think, to make sure that the U.S. and Europe share in global economic growth. That's the only way we're going to support our elderly, support the unemployed, and keep people busy. I can guarantee you that Paul Ehrlich was correct, that if one projects an exponential gain in consumption per capita, then we will run out of resources sooner or later. At some point, we will have to find satisfaction in friendship and family relationships and in intellectual activity rather than in constantly increasing our consumption of material goods. I, I absolutely agree. The question is where that threshold lies and are we close to it. I think with regard to food, if we all become vegetarians tomorrow, there'll be plenty to go around for everyone on Earth. It's the fact that we consume products that involve huge amounts of energy and water in their production, and we preferentially consume them, high meat diets, diets high in processed foods. It's not particularly healthy. We have a problem with obesity. We have a problem with early onset diabetes. And those problems are actually spreading to India and China as urban consumers go after more processed food because the prepackaged stuff is easier to put in supermarkets in those growing cities. If we focus more on less processed food, stop subsidizing things like the growth of 
cotton and alfalfa in relatively dry areas like California, there's enough water, there's enough energy, there's enough petroleum for the foreseeable future. Remember, the global population is projected to only increase by 30% before slowing down. So the real question is not that 30%. It's the fact that urban population is liable to grow by 150%, and middle-class consumers may grow by two or 300% as poor countries pull out of poverty. So what are those people going to consume, and is there enough for them all? I don't think anyone believes that it would be desirable for you know, two or three billion people to assume a Texas-style lifestyle built around you know, large cars, big freeways, outdoor barbecues, all that. Um, so a lot depends on what becomes the aspirational ideal. Regrettably, right now, China is building roads and buying cars, large cars, at a rate that bodes no good. The leadership of China is aware of this. You know, they say, we've got a few, you know, it's good to have some millionaires now. It's good to have business people. If they want to buy BMWs, it's okay. But they're working on high-speed rail. They're working on solar power. They're working on urban designs that will be more efficient. Will they run out of water and foul their nest before they get there? I think not. I mean, I, I, we went through this in America where our rivers were catching fire and our kid, kids couldn't go outside to play in Los Angeles because of the smog. And we reacted to that by saying, we don't want to live like this. And I can tell you that in China, people are quite angry about the water pollution, poison sludge, and all of this. So I don't think there's any reason to say we're going to run out of fundamental resources, but we have to use them much more efficiently, price them appropriately, and balance the consumption so that rich people don't make themselves sick, fat, and overweight, while developing country people are also trying to increase their meat and fatty food and processed food consumption. So a lot will depend, kind of young people here, a lot will depend on what you embrace as your lifestyle of the future and what you communicate to people in developing countries should be the global lifestyle of the future. If it's sensible, I think there's plenty of room for growth. Sir. Yes, in the back. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. I wouldn't blame individuals on the micro level because usually they're simply responding to the incentives that they find in front of them. A lot of people used to condemn the economic efforts of people in developing countries by saying workers are not motivated, people are not inquisitive. But in fact, they were just laboring under oppressive governments that didn't reward people for taking chances and didn't give them opportunities. And so we've seen in country after country, China, India, uh, Ethiopia, if there are opportunities for people, they respond with greater energy and better choices. I think the same thing is true of the environment. I tell people in America, if the price of gasoline were to go to $10 a gallon, it would not destroy America as a nation. There are plenty of prosperous countries in the world where gasoline is priced at $10 or $12 a gallon, and they adapt. People drive smaller cars, they spend more time walking, they live closer to home. 
the adaptation itself may be a little awkward, but we're a very rich country. You know, we pay tens of millions of dollars to athletes. We fill up music stadiums. We spend lots and lots of money on things that are not vital. If saving our environment or educating our children starts to be seen as more vital, and we are willing to say it would be smart, you know, to incentivize people to change their behavior, we would not have a problem. The real problem is people being told, whether it's by media or politicians or their neighbors, that it would be a disaster to change. We want to keep things as they are. Don't let anyone tell you that they should change it. But the world is changing. And if people don't adapt to the changes in the world, then we're all in trouble. And so I, I don't blame people at the micro level because my view is that people are actually very reasonable if they're free to make choices and if they have incentives that give them the right information to make choices. Uh, sir, I'm sorry. No? Oh, just pointing her out. Okay, thank you. Yes? Right. We are, but because of immigration and because the kids of the baby boomers are still having kids, we're still growing a bit. Right. Right. Well, you can always send some of the elderly abroad. And I've, I've actually advocated this as perhaps a sensible solution. By, by 20, let me think of the dates right. By 2050, America's population is projected to be about 400 million, of which 100 million will be over age 60. Now, how much is it going to cost for those 100 million to find a place to settle, retire, get medical care, get drugs, and so on? Right now, if you go across the border to Mexico, you probably know you can get prescription drugs in pharmacies very cheaply. Many people also travel abroad for operations that they can't afford at home. The risks involve the fact that many of the overseas uh, medical facilities are not certified or regulated to U.S. standards, although they often produce high-quality care. And indeed, many of our doctors, as someone mentioned, are coming from overseas now. If it were the case that half of those Americans over 60 could save 10000 a year in medical or drug or living expenses by going to Costa Rica or Mexico, either to live full-time or for operations and care, you know, that would save $500 billion a year. That's something that we'll have to think about as attractive, and it's already happening. Americans are retiring to Costa Rica and to Mexico. Indeed, a number of Mexican companies are already building nursing homes whose target is aging Americans with the goal of providing lower-cost care. We could be more active 
in encouraging medical facilities in the developing world to seek an approval for Medicare payment and certification to U.S. standards. And if that happens, again, this cooperation between currently rich countries and developing countries could be win-win for everyone. It's just right now we kind of encourage people to stay at home. And it's not any more cost-effective than it would be growing all of our own bananas or doing anything else that we now take for granted we get on the world market. Thank you for coming and joining us. Thank you for uh, your questions and your attendance. And uh, we will see you again sometime, I hope. Look forward to it.